<laughs> uh, some of you guys actually came to see me last week, for which I'm deeply grateful, and I hope uh, others of you will drop in in my office hours too. It's really great to get to know you. People are so different. They come from so many different backgrounds. However, so far, only Californians have dropped by. Okay. From 1811 to 1813, while Napoleon was still wreaking havoc in Europe, the British Army was called out to perform a task that far more than any foreign wars was to keep it occupied for the next four decades. 12,000 British soldiers, more than Wellington, took with him on his Spanish campaign against Napoleon, were deployed at home against domestic enemies. Who were these enemies? They were largely weavers and other textile artisans. They were breaking into factories, wrecking the machinery that was putting them out of work. Sometimes they left little notes behind them saying they were soldiers in the army of General Ned Ludd. And so they became known as Luddites. Now the British government reacted as if society itself were mortally threatened. Its troops scoured the country to find Luddites. And a bill was submitted to Parliament to punish machine breaking with the death penalty. England was, in fact, in the midst of a revolution every bit as momentous as France's. But the slogans of this revolution were not liberty, equality, and fraternity, but higher production, cheaper prices. And this revolution was the revolution of industrial capitalism. And in this revolution, the common people, of which we can take the Luddites as a symbol, stood not on the side of the revolutionaries, but on the side of the old regime that was being relentlessly destroyed. Now, many contemporaries condemned the Luddites as terrorists or, at best, pathetic idiots. Uh, what could be more irrational, more stupid, than to wreck the very labor-saving machinery that was bringing employment to workers and wealth to the country? The very factories that were enabling Britain to win the war against Napoleon. Now, for those who agreed with theorists of the economy, like, for example, Adam Smith, the factory is the symbol of enlightenment and progress because it's here that the division of labor into its smallest possible components can take place. So the name Luddite has gone down in common usage, you probably use it yourself, as the kind of bonehead who says, stop the world, I want to get off. In fact, however, the Luddites were only the first of a long stream of humble English protesters during the first four decades of the 19th century. Strikers, rioters, arsonists in the countryside who would burn down haystacks that were st was storing fodder for domestic animals. The real targets of their grievances and those of other protesters was not technology per se. What they were protesting was the moral revolution that was accompanying England's industrial revolution. They were protesting against the tyranny that allowed market relationships uh, fueled by the desire for profit, to the hero of Adam Smith's book, The Wealth of Nations, to override every traditional right. The people's right to gather wood that littered the floor of the florists, 
the right to use wasteland, common lands, the right to glean the grain dropped by reapers in the fields. Here's some Luddites. Here are the reapers. Grain that would otherwise rot when it rained. Most of all, excuse me, would you please not talk in class? Thank you. Most of all, they demanded the right to a fair wage for their labor, and especially important for them, the right to be protected against unfair competition. These were all rights that they believed the new morality that was accompanying industrialization was destroying. Now today, my problem is to consider why the Industrial Revolution began where it began, in England. And I'm going to begin with the supply side, but I'm going to argue that the tremendous increases in productivity that we associate with the Industrial Revolution originated not from changes in science and technology and new inventions. Uh, they were there, certainly, but England was far from unique in this. So much as from changes in attitudes, attitudes towards morality, towards what constituted the good, attitudes towards property, which became fully individual here long before it did on the continent, and attitudes towards the proper role of government. And together, these attitudes constituted a moral revolution and constitute much of what the Luddites were protesting. But they belong among the very causes of England's being first. And then I'm going to shift to the demand side of the explanation. Machines, after all, are capable of producing items in such huge quantities, but of such relatively crude quality, that they require a certain kind of society if anyone is going to be able to make a profit out of the increases of, in productivity that these machines are making possible. And so I'm going to argue that England had precisely that kind of society. First of all, it was fully monetarized. Everybody, practically, bought what they needed. They didn't make things at home. So it was a true market economy. And that, being a market economy, it owned, owed not to changes in manufacturing, but first of all, to changes in agriculture. Secondly, England's social pyramid was steep, as steep as anyone else's. Uh, the, the very rich, however, were not separated from the rest of society by a huge unbridgeable gulf. Rather, they were connected by a finely differentiated hierarchy, row upon row of intermediate strata that we now call the middle classes. I don't know how I got off schedule here, but I did. Now, this social structure created a new demand structure, new attitudes towards purchasing. And these attitudes were based less on what you needed than on what you wanted. And the Industrial Revolution itself, we could say, was based at least as much upon competitive consumers as it was upon competitive producers. So let's begin with changes in mentality, with the moral revolution that made this industrialization possible, and that made life for ordinary artisans like the Luddites, here I'm going back here, uh, so hard. Now these changes in mentality, this moral revolution, is the subject of your main reading this week, the novel Hard Times. Hard Times is an attack on this morality on three levels, so they all interlock. 
It's an attack on what we call classical political economy, as represented by Adam Smith and Thomas Malthus and David Ricardo. All men who, in Dickens' view, think the highest law of humanity is to buy cheap, sell dear. But secondly, hard times is also an attack on the relations between the sexes in this new industrial economy. For this economy turns people themselves into commodities, workers like Stephen Blackpool, of course, but also women, Louisa Gradgrind, Mrs. Sparsett, are also essentially commodities in this novel, uh, commodities that Mr. Brownderby has purchased on the market. So hard times is, a, is an attack on the relations between the sexes and particularly an attack on contemporary marriage. But most fundamentally, hard times is an attack on moral philosophy, the moral philosophy that had inverted all of the values of a good society, as he saw it, a moral philosophy that positively demanded that people replace the golden rule, do unto others as you would have others do unto you, with the golden rule, or you could say the iron rule, look out for number one and which seemed to say that if you didn't look out for number one, then you deserved whatever poverty you might suffer. All three of these systems, the new political economy, contemporary marriage, the new moral theory, crush the human personality, prevent people from living naturally, according to Dickens, from living according to their hearts. They subvert the imagination and the spontaneity necessary for authenticity. Worst of all, they subvert the loyalty and sense of mutual obligation that ties society together. Now, Dickens's Coketown is everyone's nightmare of a factory town in the early days of the Revolution. But Dickens makes no attempt to describe the world of the factory. Don't expect a realist novel here. It wasn't the factory per se, or even the Industrial Revolution, that was producing for Dickens the hard times that was pressing workers to the wall. It was hard hearts, the product of the new morality. And so Dickens is trying to demonstrate this argument through a kind of fable. The factory for him is a fairy palace, at least at night. The capitalist, Mr. Bounderby, who inhabits it, is described as the giant of the factory, an ogre. Now, the moral revolution that is the object of Dickens's scorn actually had a name in this period. It was given an explicit formulation by the advocates of utilitarianism. Utilitarianism, it's been around for decades, centuries, uh, millennia perhaps, but as formulated now, it was a theory of morality that argued that any action should be judged solely by its consequences. The most systematic exponent of this moral philosophy, this was the philosophy the Luddites were rebelling against, was the merrily optimistic and weirdly eccentric Jeremy Bentham. Now, Bentham's thoroughgoing, naked individualism put this moral theory on the map, and it laid the groundwork for what we today call market rationality. Bentham's disciples founded the University of London, and you can see Jeremy Bentham at University College there today, where he still sits, stuffed, cane in hand, hat on lap. Makes him a favorite for graduation pictures. He's described in the student saying as present, but not voting. 
Unfortunately, his head, uh, which once lay between his feet, has now been stolen. And so we have to put up with a fake head. Now we might I liken this auto icon, as some people call it, to the relics of Catholicism, the glass cases of saints' bones in medieval and Baroque churches in Europe and Latin America, or perhaps even the embalmed body of Lenin in Red Square. This, however, is a relic of the new religion of totalitarianism. Now, Bentham was born in 1748. He graduated from law school at 12. He never actually practiced law, however. He was independently wealthy, so he spent most of his life advancing proposals to reform Britain's legal system. It was only after he met the penniless Scotsman James Mill in 1808, however, this was a man 25 years his junior, that Bentham's ideas began to become influential. Now, James Mill was a philosopher and an economist, but today he is best known for being the loving but domineering father of the liberal philosopher and reformer John Stuart Mill for having crammed Greek into the boy at age three, algebra at age eight. And James Mill once punished little John Stuart for making the terrible mistake of saying something or other was true in theory but not in practice. So James Mill is your model for Mr. Gradgrind. Uh, note the play on his name. A mill's job is to grind grain between stones. But during the Industrial Revolution, the definition of mill begins to expand to include, for example, factories and steelworks. And Gradgrind's daughter, Louisa, is a female version of John Stuart Mill. Just like Gradgrind's theories of education wrecked the life of Louisa, Father James Mill's program of education for his son was probably indirectly responsible for bringing about John Stuart Mill's nervous breakdown at age 20. In any case, by 1808, James Mill had already gathered a bunch of energetic young disciples around Jeremy Bentham and began propagating his ideas. Within less than a decade, Bentham's principles had become commonplace among the British public. He was quoted in learned journals. He was quoted in the House of Commons. James Mill also introduced Bentham to the brilliant stockbroker David Ricardo. And Bentham and Mill together were instrumental in getting Ricardo's greatest book, The Principles of Political Economy, published in 1817. This became the Bible of classical economics. It preached the doctrine of laissez-faire, about which more later. So Benthamism was both an ethical system of utilitarianism and a philosophy of public policy. It was an outgrowth of the radicalism of the Enlightenment, and it shared the Enlightenment's belief in reason, but with one crucial difference. At least I would say there is one. You could probably find 20 if you were looking hard. But men like Locke and Rousseau and Thomas Jefferson all appealed to natural rights. Bentham dismissed the very notion of natural rights as nonsensical. How could anybody complain that all, uh, how could anyone claim that all men uh, were endowed with inalienable rights to, let's say, liberty? Who endowed them with it? The creator? Well, obviously not, because all men don't have liberty. Look around you. We could come by such a proposition that all men 
are endowed with inalienable rights only by intuition. But intuition produces different rights according to the different people doing the intuiting. The slave owner would probably not come up with the same set of inalienable rights as the slave. Bentham and his followers wanted a moral philosophy that didn't depend on different people's intuitions, that was empirical, that was based upon pure objective fact, one that could derive statements about what ought to be from statements about what is. And he wanted a moral philosophy that was neutral, that would produce the same policy results regardless of who was applying it. Benthamite utilitarianism was a morality that claimed to be based solely on objective calculation. It didn't concern itself with whether or not a person had good intentions. It didn't contain any notion of what was good or evil in itself. It rejected absolutes, like Stephen Blackpool's belief that promises must be kept. What are you telling me? Why should they be kept? Not because you gave your word or because it was the honorable thing to do. Whether or not you keep a promise should be judged solely, entirely on its consequences. It probably is right to say that promises should normally be kept, because otherwise much of life as we know it, contracts for example, uh, would be really unpredictable. Our calculations about the future would be worthless. But this is really a pretty limited affirmation. Now Bentham himself was most concerned with legal reform and he based his proposals for reform on what he called a philosophic calculus, coming from the Latin word felix, meaning happiness. And this was a moral arithmetic grounded in the principle of utility. Any action, he argued, including legislation, was good or bad only to the degree that it increased happiness or diminished it to the actual persons the legislation affected. It is the greatest happiness of the greatest number of persons that is our measure of right and wrong. So what's happiness? Bentham defined it simply as pleasure. Unhappiness was pain. Now the content of these terms, pleasure or pain, he insisted would vary from one person to the next. It could only be determined by the individual actually affected, and people weren't alike. So it's not up to the legislator to urge any particular pleasure on people as higher or better than another. For the purpose of legislation, he said, Bowling is as good as poetry. Uh, if you like it, it gives you as much pleasure. Basically, different strokes for different folks. That's his view. And maximizing the total pleasure in the world is all that counted. Now, his critics, like Dickens, were appalled. What about beauty? What about honesty? What about honor? What about loyalty? And they considered Bentham a misanthrope someone with such a bleak view of human nature that he refused to acknowledge that humans were capable of benevolence, of putting their own pleasures or interests second to some higher good, to the interests of humanity. Bentham denied this. He said everybody should be free to be as benevolent or charitable as she wanted. But he did insist, for the purposes of legislation, the safest course was for lawmakers to assume 
that each citizen preferred his own interest to that of his neighbor. And so they should make their philosophic calculations according to this principle of self-preference. Not the legislator's self-preference, but what, what his view of the entire citizenry's self-preference is. And just as Gradgrind is a fictionalization of Bentham's disciple, James Mill, Machokum Child and Bitzer are caricatures of a stripped-down utilitarianism. Machokum Child satirizes Bentham's claim to put morality on an empirical basis, and Bitzer embodies Bentham's principle of self-preference. You should consider hard times, then, a kind of utilitarianism for dummies. Now, Bentham hoped that by insisting on the principle of self-preference, he could dissolve what he thought were the fictions that only confused political debate. And these fictions included notions like the public interest, the national interest, uh, reasons of state, national security, community, human rights, legitimacy, honor, all of this. As far as he was concerned, these phrases were simply dangerous disguises behind which any group that found itself in power could try to impose its own values, its own interests on everyone else. Instead, he said, every institution and every piece of legislation has to be judged not in terms of some meaningless abstraction like the national interest, but solely in terms of what it does for individuals, and then count those individuals up. For example, does someone in Berkeley want to build an opera house? Are they talking about beauty or culture, public good? Watch out. Ask how many people in town would actually visit the opera. And if it's only, say, 20,000 in a town of, say, 150,000, then obviously these references to community are just a way for opera goers to tax, that is, cause pain, to non-opera goers to get them to pay for their own pleasures. Now, the hold of Benthamite utilitarianism on political thought in England and later, and I would say to an even greater extent in the United States, helps explain, I think, why these two countries, uh, the richest countries in the world for the longest time, nevertheless have so many fewer opera houses and symphony orchestras and ballet companies than, say, Germany or France or even Russia with a much lower GDP. Another explanation, and this too is connected with Benthamism, is that these two countries were for a long time the most democratic. And so they were responding to popular demand as counted. The great advantage of the philosophic calculus, he argued, was that it makes it impossible for legislators to forget that governments act only by inflicting pain. Pain is disutility. Every law is an evil, he argued. Every law is an infraction of someone's liberty, so we must be very careful when we make them. Now, this calculus of his was nothing if not simple. But the very simplicity led critics to argue that Bentham, at least theoretically, could countenance murder. Let's say there are 10 men in a lifeboat. All of them are getting hungrier and hungrier. One of them is already weak. What would the philosophic calculus tell them to do? Judge the action by the consequences. Seems clear. 
Jeremy Bentham cared nothing about what form a government took. Monarchy, democracy, what have you. Liberty for him was the supreme good, but only because it was procedural, because it allowed every individual to judge what was good for himself. So though during the French Revolution, the French Parliament made him an honorary French citizen, initially he actually thought an absolute monarch was potentially maybe the best form of government because the absolute monarch could calculate better than others. Eventually, however, James Mill convinced him that the best way to ensure that legislation adhered to utilitarian principles was to put the ultimate power in the hands of the greatest number themselves, the people. The essence of democracy was it made it possible for anyone, imp sorry, impossible for anyone to have his way without bringing together the agreement of at least the plurality of other people around. Now, unlike Thomas Jefferson, Bentham didn't think the common man was any less selfish, selfish than decadent aristocrats. On the contrary, it was because Bentham assumed that under democracy, every man would pursue his own interests that he expected the greatest happiness to result. So unlike David Ricardo and many of the other classical economists, Bentham didn't oppose government and government regulation in principle. But he thought that in practice, only rarely did government action bring more happiness than an individual could bring himself by his own actions. Consequently, Benthamites tended to be England's loudest supporters for the doctrine laissez-faire, leave it alone. And this earned them the label liberal, because liberal in those days meant free. And the freest citizens, they thought, were citizens that their government left alone. So leaving alone was a doctrine that argued that Britain's new industrialists should be free from the inconveniences of any kind of strangling government regulation. Regulation on minimum wage, on maximum hours, on occupational safety, on the quality of their product. If the quality of this new machine-made cloth was shoddy, and shoddy is actually the term for a textile uh, made out of waste products, then it's up to the buyer to decide not to buy it. The market would impose its own penalties on people who produced faulty products. Demand would drop, and ultimately these people would go out of business. So there's no need for government to do anything. Now, not surprisingly, the capitalist class in Britain and later throughout Europe was happy to call themselves liberal. And Bentham, I must say, was absolutely rigorous and consequential in, in applying his maxims. Since he thought individuals were the best judge of their own pleasures and pains, he favored decriminalizing incest and homosexuality, and homosexuality was then a crime that carried the death penalty. He is therefore the intellectual godfather of today's American liberals for whom privacy rights trump social goods. And he is also the intellectual godfather of American conservatism since he was profoundly suspicious of government. He pushed, for example, for the privatization of one of the very few government services that England in his lifetime actually provided, and that was prisons. He wanted them to be basically contracted out to contractors like uh, 
many American states do today. Now, Bentham was obviously simply theorizing and rationalizing a kind of mentality that others were already adopting instinctively. The individualism that lay at his heart had already been making rapid strides in England. And indeed, the very notion of a market which accompanied it was progressing. Now, in our own day and age, the model of the market, based upon thinking about a world made up of individuals, each seeking his own happiness, this structures our thinking in just about everything. It governs the way we think about economics. It's our model for thinking about the natural world. Darwin, for example, developed his conception of natural selection by thinking about the market. Applying the notions of Thomas Malthus of an expanding human population competing for scarce resources to the animal kingdom. The market is also our, the basis for our theory of democratic politics. Voting, after all, implies choices made by individuals in a free political market. And ideas about the market govern the way political scientists analyze international relations, at least those who follow rational choice theory. In the market model, we are all Bentham's happiness-maximizing individuals. And this is translated by economists into profit-maximizing individuals. Each of us is our own economist, not a homo sapiens, but a homo economicus, acting according to a rational calculation of utility, of gain and loss. Now, the model of rational calculation of utility and disutility has come so to dominate our thinking that it's hard for us to realize how very recent a creation, the market, both as a concept and as a reality, really was. Before the 18th century, if people talked about economics at all, they talked about it not in terms of a market, but in terms of its Greek root, okos, meaning household. And even in the 18th century, what we now call classical economics was a branch of ethics. And this is certainly true both of, the economic, of both of the economic giants you're reading this week. Adam Smith was a professor of moral philosophy at the University of Edinburgh. Thomas Malthus was an Anglican clergyman. The primacy of market rationality in England was not, however, only the result of ideas by thinkers. It had much deeper social and cultural roots. And you could say these ideologies are, in some way, the consequence of this society as much as the cause. So for the rest of today, I want to look at some of the ways the market came to govern social relations in England. A good 50 years ahead of its closest economic competitor on the continent, Belgium, and 200 years ahead of most other European countries. And it is this domination of the English economy by the market, I would argue, that is our best, most powerful explanation for the most important revolution of the 18th and 19th centuries, the Industrial Revolution. Now, it's true, uh, 18th century England produced a number of labor-saving inventions, like the spinning jenny and the steam engine. But technology was not the cause of the Industrial Revolution. Sung China in 1078 already had similar inventions. China had hundreds of iron bridges a 1,000 years before the English built their first in 1779. 
And similarly, France in the 18th century was at least as advanced in science and technology as England. And indeed, you could say many of the inventions that are crucial to the English Industrial Revolution were first made in France. The English essentially improved and adapted and uh, employed them, made them more marketable, rather like the Japanese did for decades after World War II with American inventions. So technology can't be the real explanation for the Industrial Revolution because technology never stays put. You can sell it and you can buy it. It always is bought and sold. And by the 1890s, for example, Russia was crisscross with railways, having imported that technology from abroad. But that did not make Russia an industrial society. Far from it. So we can't escape the conclusion that England's early industrialization is best explained not by some list of new inventions or other variables, but by a set of interlocking systemic changes that reflect much broader differences and deeper differences between Britain and continental societies. Differences that created a market and that encouraged people to think in market terms. Now, the place that these Deep social differences showed themselves first, and most clearly, was in agriculture. In 1800, only about a third of the working population in England was employed in strictly agricultural pursuits. One third, supporting two thirds. This is really a staggering figure. It means a single agriculturalist is producing enough food to support himself and two other working adults and their combined families. And how unusual this is can be seen if we look elsewhere in Europe. Even in the 1930s, agriculture employed from 70 to 80% of the population in Poland, Serbia, Romania, Bulgaria, the Baltic countries. The European continent as a whole did not reduce the proportion of non-agricultural labor to what England had in 1800 until the mid-20th century. Greece, Spain, Portugal, and Ireland didn't reach this one farmer for every three adults until the 1960s and early 70s. Now, such a sharp reduction in the agricultural population can only come about if productivity grows up really sharply. And that's what happened in England. One acre in England produced two and a half times as much food as in very fertile France. And France is the next competitor, you could say, in agricultural productivity. So historians refer to England's agricultural revolution. Now, the increase in agricultural productivity was not the result of introducing new machinery. In the 18th and early 19th centuries, uh, the grain was still being scattered on the ground, uh, by hand, reapers were still harvesting their wheat with pretty much the same tools, sickles and scythes, as they had done for hundreds of years. Rather, England's agricultural revolution was a result of changes in procedures, in organizations. But the result was a transformation in productivity. So let's look at procedures first. Until the 18th century, farmers followed a three-course system of crop rotation. You planted a winter crop, you planted a spring crop, and you left a third of your field fallow. 
unplanted. Leave it unplanted for a year so it can recover its fertility. Now, one of the main innovations of the 18th century was to get rid of this three-course system of crop rotation, which leaves a third of your land unused for any given time, and to introduce a four-course rotation. Plant barley in winter, clover in spring, wheat in summer, turnips in autumn. This was called the Norfolk system. It began in the county of Norfolk, and it had several advantages. Clover, I hope you know, is a legume. That means it takes nitrogen from the air and fixes it in the soil. So clover replenishes the nitrogen that the wheat and the barley pull out of the soil. And so the field remains nitrogen rich, fertile. It doesn't have to be fallow. More important, the cultivation of turnips. Turnips keep a very long time. They're as hard as wood. Put them in the ground, put them in the cellar, means that instead of automatically slaughtering your pig, or your cow every autumn, you can keep him going through the winter. And this introduces an entirely new flexibility in farming for the market. Now, let's say you have a particularly great harvest and there's a glut of grain on the market. So the price for your grain plummets. Well, you simply feed your grain to your pig, which gains weight considerably, and then you sell your pig. And when grain prices are high because of bad weather, for example, well, you give your pig some clover or some turnips, or you eat them yourself. Now, this four-course rotation, the Norfolk system, was called, uh, uh, self-explanatory term, convertible husbandry. It allows the farmer to respond to price, to changes in supply and demand, what we call market forces. Now, we can't exaggerate the impact of any one development, but a variety of new procedures seem now to be symptoms of changes, really more even than causes. Symptoms of a new attitude towards agriculture itself, one that encourages experiment and innovation along a number of lines, but all leading to thinking in terms of profit and loss. And this is an attitude that treats the family farm not as a way of life, the way landowners did in Spain and Hungary and Russia, not as a way to keep your family alive, which is the way peasants did in Ireland and France, Bavaria and Serbia, but rather it treats the farm the same way a merchant treats his firm. It's a way to make money. The more of it, the better. Now, obviously, the English gentry felt that if they invested in things like manure or new crops or selective livestock breeding, their outlays would be eventually rewarded. And here are some of the rewards. Here we see the Nubus ox, the result of selective breeding and feeding. Uh, the Yorkshire rose. And here we have the North Devon ox with T.W. Coke Esquire and a fellow squire. The rich in the Renaissance remember one of their portraits painted next to the Pope or the Virgin Mary or Jesus. Here they're posing with their prize ox. Now these men expect to be rewarded not in the afterlife and not only with prestige but with profit. Now these investments require, first of all, clear property relationships. You need to know whose land you're planting if you're going to put down manure whose cow it is you're breeding. And you don't always know this when village lands are held in common. Getting this kind of control de 
depends upon a change in value systems. You're going to also, secondly, need more acreage in order to introduce economies of scale. If you're going to pay to ship the guano, and I hope everyone knows what that term means, of seabirds all the way from Chile or Peru to fertilize your fields, you're going to have to have a big enough field to make the whole thing worth the effort and money. So this requires a change in agricultural organization, a change we call enclosure. The division and fencing of common lands among private owners. Now, traditional European agriculture was still based on the open field system. Villagers owned strips of land, but they weren't necessarily contiguous with each other. They were scattered about on open fields, no barriers between them. And in Russia and in parts of eastern Germany, villages actually redivvied up these strips periodically, taking some away from some families who maybe had fewer children and giving them to others with more mouths to feed, feed and more hands to till. In most countries, villagers didn't go this far, but in all cases, the open field system demanded continuous cooperation on the part of the villagers on such matters as access and water rights and sowing and harvesting. This isn't exactly collective agriculture, but it certainly is communally regulated agriculture. And every country on the continent had common lands. Now, this was usually land that wasn't really worth enough for anyone actually to buy, too swampy, too scrubby, too rocky to grow crops, but it still remained of some value. You could pasture a sheep there or a few geese, or you might be able to pick up some fly, firewood or some mulch. All landowners, small and large, of the village had the right to use it. So what enclosure means is the privatization in a mass scale, divvying up these common lands among the owners, and the owners then begin draining the swamps, picking up the stones, making fences out of them, clearing the brush, fertilizing the soil. In fact, turning wasteland into arable. Now, enclosing the common lands was almost invariably accompanied by landowners trading their uh, own strips or maybe selling them back and forth so they could put together a one contiguous farm or estate. And then they would put a fence around it or a hedge around it. And here we have a picture of enclosed fields. So the enclosures mark an important change in the way farmland is conceived. It's conceived as individual, fully private property. Now, economic historians will say, yes, enclosures had been taking place in England continuously since the 13th century. True, true. But the 18th century saw the climax of this process. It witnessed more enclosures than all the preceding centuries put together. And the consequences were momentous. Social critics like Dickens and others, Oliver Goldsmith, argued that the main result is the rich got richer. And that is certainly true. By 1875, 80% of all the land in the entire United Kingdom, country with 33 million people, was owned by only 7,000 persons. No wonder Oliver Goldsmith called these men the lords of humankind. So I want to look at uh, some of the places where these guys lived. Here is Blenheim, home of the Duke of Marlborough. 
Here is Blenheim Courtyard. It's not Versailles. It's not bad. It's open to the public on certain days. Here's the Duke of Devonshire's Chatsworth, uh, once visited by Jane Austen. Could this have been the model for Pemberley, the home of Mr. Darcy? You read the description of the two, they're almost exact. And I think there's no wonder here that Austen's heroine, Elizabeth Bennet, felt, and I quote, that to be the mistress of Pemberley might be something. Nowhere else in the world did landowners have as much wealth or power as they did in Britain. In Spain, Russia, and Prussia, anyone who owned 250 to 350 acres was counted by the statisticians of those countries in the class of the great landowners as a grandee. In England, someone who owned a mere 1,000 acres was considered, or as much as 1,000 acres, was considered only a moderately well-endowed member of the gentry. So here's the Duke of Norfolk's uh, uh, Arundel Castle. He owned 150,000 acres. Uh, and here you see uh, the courtyard. It's a lot like Yale University, I would say. Now, at the very top of the pyramid were men whose holdings encompassed more acreage than several sovereign German states. And the incomes they received simply from renting out large parcels of their land to farmers was larger than the national budgets of several European countries. How did they get so rich? Well, many of these fortunes began with Henry VIII's uh, reformation, with church lands that were given to them or which they bought. And then the English law of primogenitor allowed landowners to leave all of their land to the eldest sons if they wanted, and they generally did. I was on a tour uh, that being shown round Blenheim by one of the younger sons of the family. And he said, and I quote, we in England have the system of primogenitor, you know, and that means my brother owns all this. And I, I have the pleasure of speaking with you. <laughs> but landowners also invested, not only in agriculture, but in many other enterprises. London real estate, London banks, insurance companies, overseas trade, slave trade, and later in canals, highways, railroads, and other improvements. And remember, landowners controlled parliaments, the parliament. They they had hereditary seats in the House of Lords if they were peers, and uh, they were elected by fellow landowners if they were uh, only um, gentry or sirs, or even just large, ordinary common people, to the House of Commons. In no other European country was Parliament so powerful as in England, especially after 1688 and the Glorious Revolution. But this doesn't mean that the common people are running the country. No, it means the landowners are running the country. And you may remember from your reading that John Locke, the intellectual spokesman for this 1688 revolution, put great emphasis on the ownership of private property as a natural right. He called the preservation of property, and I'm quoting, the end, that is the purpose, of government. It was the reason, he said, why men enter into society. So we shouldn't be surprised that the laws the Parliament passed on inheritance, on credit, uh, on enclosure, were laws that suited this land-owning acreocracy, as it was called. Nowhere else in Europe was there a concept of property so fully individualistic as here. In France, even after 1789, rights to common lands continued. In Prussia, 
noblemen until 1807 were not able to sell their land to a non-noble or they'd lose their noble status. So, you know, you don't really even have a market in land there. And that meant also that they would be unwilling uh, to borrow, to make investments on it, because the risk, complete loss of status, if they couldn't pay and they weren't able to sell uh, without losing status, was just too great. So Prussia's aristocrats were, in effect, barred from making the kind of cost-benefit calculations necessary to turn a profit. And these were the kinds of calculations that their English counterparts routinely made, took for granted. Now, Prussia changed this restriction in 1807 at the same time that it declared serfs freemen. And Prussian landlords immediately seized the opportunity to start an enclosure movement just like England's. But they never became so rich. If Arundel Castle looks like an Ivy League campus, uh, then this Saxon estate in Germany looks more like the Little Red Schoolhouse. And here is a noble uh, house in Pomerania. Even in Russia, the estates looked pretty modest compared to the English acreocracy. Here's the novelist Tolstoy on his family estate, Yasnaya Polyana. Uh, it had uh, 5,000 acres and 7,000 souls working on it, and even that wasn't typical. At the other end of the spectrum is this Boyer's house, also a noble house, but not really so very different from peasants. And even in France, a wealthy country, a chateau, was closer to a prosperous English farm than to the palaces of the English acreocracy. Well, if the rich got richer, does that mean that the English poor are getting poorer through enclosures? Many thought so. Karl Marx is one. The great poet Oliver Goldsmith is another. It's on the re his poem is on the reverse of your handout today. But the story is more complicated. Let's look at small farmers. In any given village, everyone who had a legal claim to the common lands gets a share during enclosure, usually a strip proportionate to the size of his existing farm. So the big landowners get the larger share, but the small landowners get something. So enclosures don't really hurt the peasant proprietor known as yeoman farmer uh, in England. In fact, enclosure might make his land more valuable. Let's say his land is stuck between two parcels the big guy wants. Well, he can uh, take advantage, hold out, and drive the price up and sell out and make a profit. Or uh, he can hold out and not agree and force the uh, landowner to go to the House of Commons. Uh, now, it's true, eventually the House of Commons is probably going to come around. You can see here it's a small and pretty clubby place. but Basically, the small landowner did very well with enclosures. It was not he whose situation was badly affected. Rather, it was the very poor, the squatters who lived on the fringes of the open fields. These people owned no land at all, and so they had no legal rights to the commons. They're not legally part of the village. But in the past, they had been tolerated grudgingly. They'd been allowed to gather twigs for their fire or gorse, or to graze a goose or two. Because under the old system, this hadn't interfered with what everybody else wanted. But now that the commons are being enclosed, the slender margin necessary for their survival disappeared. Now, unlike the yeoman, they've got no property whose value is going to go up now that they can sell. They're simply out. So not surprisingly, enclosures have had a bad reputation 
They've been seen as expropriation, as a great theft, at least by the softer-hearted people among us. What did they have to do with the Industrial Revolution? Oliver Goldsmith, Karl Marx, many others took it for granted that the enclosures drove the peasantry from the land into these polluted coke towns that the new industrialists are erecting. And they were the people who manned the new factories as hands. And it certainly sounds obvious, but this is in fact wrong. Recent population studies show that the English population tended to rise precisely in those regions that had the most enclosure. How do we explain this? Two things seem to be happening. First of all, there's no doubt that enclosure brought about a tremendous increase in productivity per acre. And that certainly probably influenced infant survival rates because of better nutrition. Secondly, however, it also appears that in most places with enclosure, demand for agricultural labor actually rose because agriculture was now both more expansive but also more intensive. Extensive, intensive at the same time. The very act of enclosing created work. Uh, you had to lift all those stones to pile them up to make those fences. You had to dig those ditches to drain it. You had to plant hedges. Uh, you don't build a drywall like this in Yorkshire without having a lot of labor. So enclosure increased rather than destroyed employment opportunities in agriculture. But even more significant for our story and the, of the development of a market economy and thus of industrialization, and more significant than increase in agricultural productivity in the food supply is the fact that former peasants, yeoman farmers, even when they remained employed as agricultural laborers, become wage earners. And in terms of consequence, whether they're agricultural wage earners or industrial wage earners doesn't really matter. They're all producing what their firms tell them to produce. And they're all getting paid for it in money, which means they have to buy whatever they need. Now, on the continent, farmers aimed at their, making their own decisions, and aim, they aim at producing everything they need for themselves. And even agricultural laborers on the continent, when they had no land, are usually paid in kind rather than in cash. Even in the cities on the continent, retail, in our sense, hardly existed in the 18th century. If you wanted a product made by somebody else, say, a dress, you pre-ordered it. It was custom made just for you. In England, on the other hand, everybody has to go to the market, literally and figurative, for everything he or she consumes, for fuel, for food, for clothes. Now, on the margins, people may mend and make a little of this, and they may grow a few potatoes and so forth. But by and large, they are living and supporting themselves by buying. And this is, of course, what is sparking Napoleon's contemptuous description of the English as a nation of shopkeepers, une nation de boutiquier. Now, this very choice of word, boutique, to describe the commercialization of English life, I think demonstrates how very limited Napoleon's own concept of the market was. This isn't a bunch of boutiques we're seeing in England. It shows how little he understood what was really going on. Now, the end of household self-sufficiency in England 
allows for the full monetarization of the economy. And monetarization makes possible the kinds of calculations that would be impossible if people are producing only for themselves. It's much easier to calculate in pounds and shillings than it is in, say, potatoes or bushels. Uh, you don't really know how big or how heavy they're going to be. And it allows the ma maxive, maximum division of labor, which is what Adam Smith is describing as central. So if demand for agricultural labor is actually increasing in these English counties with enclosure, that leaves a problem. How can enclosure be the explanation for England's startlingly low ratio of people employed in agriculture compared to the total population? I mean, it's a kind of puzzle, right? Got it? Fewer people are producing, yet more people are employed where they're having uh, enclosure. The answer, enclosure doesn't take place everywhere. It usually began in land that was already very fertile to begin with, so where the, the landowner could anticipate profits from investments. And then the market introduces its own feedback mechanism. That is, those countries with a lot, or, sorry, those counties with a lot of enclosure become so much more productive that the counties outside uh, that haven't done it yet are being driven out of business. Um, they can't really produce enough to keep up, particularly if they're using traditional agriculture or if they have less fertile land to begin with. So they get undersold, because they're also going to the market to a small extent, and they go out of business. And it's these people, the farmers in the less fertile, stonier, unenclosed counties, who take up now non-agricultural jobs, manning the factories, that are springing up, particularly in the Midlands. So productivity is increasing division of labor. Some people stay in agriculture, some go into industry. And division of labor itself increases productivity, just as Adam Smith predicted. And we can see the effects of enclosure most clearly if we compare English agriculture to that of France in the 19th century. Like enclosure, the revolution in France also clarified property relationships. But whereas enclosure did it for the benefit of the aristocracy, the revolution gave the land in France to the peasantry who had traditionally farmed it. At the same time, the French Revolution outlawed primogenitor. And the Code Napoleon, in the, in the name of equality, required a father to give all of his sons at least a piece of the family inheritance. So what you have is uh, no, not nearly so many are rich nobles as before. They're not nobles anymore. You do have big landowners, but they're not nearly as many uh, as you have in England. The peasantry get most of the land. And the peasantry, the new legal relations, make, make it impossible for an inegalitarian solution to rise among peasants. The French farms got continually subdivided, um, and they remained small, even though the French families tried to limit the, their um, birth rate as much as they could. So French farms did not enjoy economies of scale. They did not produce huge surpluses. Therefore, no people are released to engage in manufacturing. The population as a whole in France remains agricultural. 
And unlike aristocrats in England who look at agriculture simply as a way to maximize profits, peasants almost always aim at what? What is the goal of the peasant? Yes. Subsistence, yes. But what if you've got subsistence? What if you have a pretty good harvest this year and you've got subsistence? Then what's your goal? Yes. You've got it in the second part of that sentence. Uh, Guy, say it louder. You sell what you've got, but what do you do with your extra here? You've got subsistence. You've got self-sufficiency. But you made a little more this time. What do you do with it? You keep it for future use. Your aim is not to maximize profits, but let's put it in an abstract noun. What do you want? Security. You're, you know, you're dependent on the weather, right? You, a peasant, farming is one of the most risky operations there are, and the peasant doesn't want to go out and invest in guano in Chile. He wants to make sure he's got something for a rainy day. A market orientation requires not only the ability to calculate, but implies risk-taking. And what's the point of making calculations about the price of wheat versus the price of the pig if you're not going to produce them for the market where the price may rise and fall? If you're going to only grow them for your family, what do you do? You grow some of each. So the three-field system in France continues throughout much of the 19th century. Moreover, the overwhelming majority of the French population, and this brings up the point made earlier, uh, what's your name over there? <laughs> your, Matt? Matt? Max? Uh, the majority of the population was basically aiming at self-sufficiency, and since they're trying to be self-sufficient, that means no large market of consumers develop. And so this leads me to a key uh, feature of the Industrial Revolution, the development of consumerism. After all, we take the factory. That's the symbol of the Industrial Revolution. A factory is something that turns out hundreds, perhaps thousands of items a day. Who's going to want all that stuff? A factory system can't function without a large demand for its products and a demand that's going to keep on going, growing. Now, we know that enclosures created part of this demand by turning peasants, yeomen, into wage earners, working for bigger landowners, or going into non-agricultural jobs. But what are some of the other features of English society that in the 18th and early 19th century helped create enough demand to absorb, in spite of uh, occasional crashes and depressions, so many industrial, that is, mass-produced, products. Well, England was a rich society, comparatively, even before the Industrial Revolution. Its economy had, as a whole, progressed in aggregate well beyond subsistence. So wages there tended, on average, to be about twice as high as wages in France, and even higher than in other countries in Europe. The English worker had meat several times a week in the mid-18th century. This was unheard of in Russia a hundred years later. And economists have made attempts to calculate the average income per head in 18th century England and compare it to the 
average income per capita in third world pre-industrial economies in the 20th century. And it was estimated that the average per capita annual income in England in 1700 was about 70 pounds. In Nigeria, in about 1960, it was about 30 pounds. And Nigeria was at that time the richest of the new African countries. In India, it was only about 20 pounds in 1960. So already England, before it industrializes, has a much bigger cushion. But as we've seen, England also contained great inequalities of wealth, greater than anywhere on the continent. So a rich society as a whole, but very, very unequal. And it's that combination, the combination of these two features that seems to be the key. For these glaring inequalities were softened by a peculiar feature of the social structure. And that is the huge extent of the middle ranks of society. Huge, that is, by continental, uh, oh, here's some inventions here, by continental standards. Well, I missed my graph somehow. Yeah, there we are. These middle ranks link the ruling class at the very top with the laboring poor at the very bottom. As one Englishman wrote, in most countries, society presents scarcely every, anything but a void between the ignorant laboring population and a needy profligate nobility. But with us, the space between the plowman and the peer is crammed with circle after circle, fitted in the most admirable manner for sitting upon each other, for connecting the former with the latter, and for rendering the whole perfect for cohesion, strength, and beauty. And here's an artist's representation of what he's saying. It's not a very good representation, uh, not very accurate, but it's the best this artist could do. So at the start of the industrialization, uh, industrial revolution, people were only very vaguely conscious, except at the very top, of any connections they might have with people on their own level uh, living in other locales. But they were acutely aware of their exact relationship within a local hierarchy to the people immediately above them and immediately below them in their own little villages or towns. And you can see why this would be so. Every town has, let's say, one, uh, every village, one butcher, one baker, one candlestick maker. You need large-scale communities like London or Manchester, uh, communities which the Industrial Revolution eventually produced, for individuals to see enough examples of their own kind, people who share their own plight, for class consciousness to develop. The one horizontal cleavage of great importance was the gap between gentlemen and everyone else. But gentlemen was a term with no legal significance. It was simply a significant social barrier, and therefore it was infinitely permeable. It could be seen as a social goal, as an incentive. So this social structure, it's been argued, was the ideal one for generating a spontaneous industrial revolution. Why? Because of the desire of, I'm quoting a contemporary, every little tradesman and mechanic to ape the luxuries and fashionable vices of their betters. Social emulation, keeping up with the Joneses, stimulated competitive consumption that's the prerequisite for the development of a mass market. And I want to illustrate this point with examples drawn from two key early industries, cotton and pottery. Now, cotton 
was the pioneer industry in factory organization. It became char the characteristic form of industrial organization, the factory uh, from this period. It was also the locus cotton of the classic inventions that we associate with the Industrial Revolution, the spinning jenny, uh, allowing a single person to spin up to 80 yards of yarn at a time. And this, of course, brings about a huge increase in productivity. Production of cotton cloth expanded 75-fold in this period. So you think, you need tremendous demand to absorb all of this additional cotton. And what do we mean by demand? We mean desire plus purchasing power. And where did this tremendous de demand for cotton cloth come from, which encourages businessmen to invest the money to buy these machines uh, and allows these machines to be profitable, to absorb 75 times as much cotton cloth? The answer, social emulation. Competitive consumption in the form of fashion. Now, it's extremely revealing that England, unique of all European nations, including Scotland and Ireland, had no national costume. And as one historian says, a national costume is simply a euphemism for peasant dress that's been fancied up. So here is a typical peasant girl, what they wear with an apron. And here they are when they go to their wedding or get dressed up. It's basically the same costume, but with nicer materials. The English common people, when they dressed up, didn't put on a peasant blouse with more embroidery or an apron with more satin. They consciously imitated the dress of their social superiors. In fact, they did it even when they worked out in the fields, as we see right here. Now, woolen and leather industries couldn't really cater to the desire to dress up. You can't dress up leather or wool to look like silk or velvet. And if you wash them, if they get dirty, and they're surely going to get dirty doing that, uh, they're going to shrink on you. Cotton is admirably suited to the needs of the competitive fashion cycle. Why? It's easy to dye, different colors stamped with patterns, given different textures from sateen to velveteen, yet it's washable, hard-wearing, and cheap. And pottery furnishes an even more conspicuous example of competitive consumption. In fact, it was the pioneer industry of what we would today call marketing. The very concept of marketing is a brand new one, and I would say it's one of the most important inventions of the English Industrial Revolution. Now, in the early 18th century, the English upper classes bought their dinnerware from the Chinese, and then later on from the Saxons and the French who were imitating the Chinese. England itself produced only small amounts of very crude earthenware pottery, which was fragile. Therefore, you could only sell it locally at fairs. Yet, by 1750, English pottery had caught up with foreign porcelain, had become an industry of national importance, perhaps the earliest such national industry in the Industrial Revolution. And to a large degree, this was owed to the work of one man, Josiah Wedgwood, a self-taught artist and scientist, a kind of 18th century version of Leonardo da Vinci, and I might add, the grandfather of Charles Darwin. Now, Wedgwood was born the 13th son of a poor potter, and he built up his company from nothing. 
He stressed the vase as an object of aesthetic uh, excellence. But he also conducted experiments with glazes to make uh, pottery more durable and for, with new firing techniques. In addition, he was a business organizer par excellence. He revolutionized production pottery by using a kind of assembly line. He even employed children efficiently. They could beat the clay and get the, the bubbles out. And he was a moving force behind getting together groups of businessmen to lobby to secure rights of way to build canals. Canals were really necessary for him because he needed to move the best white clay up from South Cornwall, the southwest of England, to where his labor supply was in the Midlands. So clay is very heavy. The price of anything over land uh, doubled every seven miles at that time. So he needed things like this to make waterways to get it up. Canals meant, therefore, a huge reduction in transportation costs, but of course, a very sizable investment. Wedgwood found every time he introduced an improvement in some aspect of production, it was immediately copied by dozens of imitators who would then undersell him. Yet he scorned to take out a patent, and it would have been pretty unenforceable in those days anyway. In fact, even today, a patent or copyright is only worth the money you're willing to spend to go to court defending it. At the same time, however, Wedgwood refused to lower his prices. His strategy was to cash in on his reputation as a producer of art objects, as the maker of the highest quality product. So he aimed at satisfying the insatiable snobbery of the British public. And when other production potters were declining commissions by the aristocracy with the argument, no, I don't want to make your, your dishes, there's no money in uniques, Wedgwood sought out the aristocracy for orders, and then he used these orders as advertisements for his marked-down, mass-produced items. He's a kind of Donna Karen or Ralph Lauren. And he also followed the fashions. So when high society dropped gold gilding and colorful flowery designs for austere neoclassical styles, he dropped it too, even for his cheapest domestic wear. He offered expensive objects of art free to the painter Sir Joshua Reynolds for him to put in the background of his society portraits if he needed a Grecian urn or two. And he showered Britain's ambassadors to the continent with free vases, free dinnerware, and then waited for the foreign orders to come rolling in. And when Catherine the Great of Russia asked him, how about giving me a dinner service? He got the brilliant idea of having each plate painted with the picture of one of the English aristocracy's stately homes, like you've just seen. Catherine was delighted. This was an age before postcards and souvenirs, so these were kind of authentic treasures of old England. But Wedgwood got a twofer. Before shipping the dinner service off to St. Petersburg, he displayed it in his London showrooms. And this is another of his innovations. He even had plate glass windows. And all of the owners of the stately homes he depicted were then travel up all the way to London to see their country seats immortalized. And naturally, they provided a market for subsequent copies of the same set. And once they had taken it up, this dinner service, each time with fewer and fewer pieces, would make its way down the social hierarchy in marked-down items. You could call this a version of the trickle-down effect. Now, Wedgwood's biggest coup came after the Queen of England, who had been turned down by other potters, asked for a tea set. He jumped at the chance. He made the tea set out of a new 
lightweight cream-colored earthenware that he had recently developed. This was known as creamware. It was cheap. It was pretty. At the same time, he reproduced thousands of copies of the Queen's Creamware Tea Service and got permission to market them under the name Queensware. So Creamware was immediately pirated, in fact, became a staple of mass-produced pottery for the next quarter of century. It's still extremely popular in England. Queensware, exactly the same product, Wedgwood admitted privately, but fully three times the price, also remained a top seller. After all, three times the price is a small price to pay for the pleasure of sipping your tea from the same teacups the Queen used. At his death, at only 45, English Staffordshire pottery was being exported throughout the continent. It reached a market both domestic and foreign that has never been replaced by France, Dresden, or even Chinese porcelain. It became world famous, and the area of Staffordshire around Stoke-on-Trent and Colebrookdale had become major industrial centers. When you consider why the French fell behind England economically in the late 18th century, you can see their pattern of demand was simply incapable of supporting this kind of enterprise. France led the field in luxury production, both before and after the Industrial Revolution. And this was a result of a pattern of demand generated by a social structure composed of a small class of luxury consumers and a large class of peasants, self-sufficient, sales-resistant, consumption-resistant farmers. But considering Josiah Wedgwood's success, not just in responding to demand, but in creating demand for an item far overpriced from its actual worth, Indeed, in creating demand for items that are desired precisely because they are overpriced, we see a development for which there is no end in sight. And we might pause to reflect on the nature of a rationality 